This is like, you know, for, for in terms of design, this is why I focus a lot right now on behavioral economics. If I'm doing e-commerce websites or anything that's selling things, understanding how we think and what motivates us and what what compels us to, to make one decision over another or pick something versus another, that's 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 really a fundamental that you, that a designer should understand when they're making these kinds of products. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Design Exchange Podcast. Uh, this episode was recorded before the pandemic and a lot has changed for our guest, John Darragon, since then. Uh, he's now the head of design at FPT Software, one of the largest IT companies in Vietnam, and he's also launched CafeScene.com, where he shares photos and uh, reviews of some of the many wonderful cafes around Ho Chi Minh City. We talk a little bit more about life and travel than we do about design in this episode, but uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you. Good afternoon, evening, or morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of the Design Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Grove, and with me today is John Darragon, a UX or user experience design expert. Thank you for joining us. Nice to be here. Yeah. We are coming to you from the rooftop of the Winking Seal Beer Company's tap room here in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam, where uh, John moved at some Frequence. point. Yes, yes. I mean, not to the brewery, but to Saigon. <laughs> For the brewery. <laughs> so, right. When you, uh, I, I first met you, when was the first time you visited Vietnam? I was about, three, oh, probably about five years ago. And I think yeah. I saw you give a presentation at like a UX, it was an oh, event geez. that you were kind of the yeah. main speaker at. Yeah, and that was at one of the co-working spaces. They had like a pool there and I was doing it along the sort of the side of the pool. And I was just doing sort of a general UX talk about, you know, design process and all of that. It must have been then. I think so. And soon after that, you moved to Vietnam. You were here visiting from Australia, though yes. you're Canadian. Yeah, correct. And then soon after that, you moved to Vietnam, but you moved to Hanoi. Why did, that, why did you move to Hanoi? <laughs> oh, well, okay. So for the first uh, about a year, I lived in Ho Chi Minh, working for an e-commerce company here, doing UX. And actually went back to Australia, did some contract gigs, had another opportunity to actually go up and live in Hanoi and do another e-commerce contract up there and uh, spend about 11 months up there and realized I need to come back to Ho Chi Minh and set up, set up shop here, basically. Yeah. Well, welcome. Welcome here. I, happy <laughs> to be back, I got to say. Some people definitely prefer Hanoi over Ho Chi Minh City, mm. but I think the vast majority of foreigners prefer Ho Chi Minh City over Hanoi. Well, let me let me put it this way: I I liked living up there, and I thought the daily sort of quality of life was quite good. It's 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 a very nice city, but I think uh, there's something that really draws me to Ho Chi Minh, and I have a, a good friends here. And I think the, the events and sort of the get-togethers and the things that are happening in Ho Chi Minh are very aligned to what I look for. And sort of, if I'm picking a city, it's just so perfectly aligned to what I want out of life. So I, I can't put it any more clearly than that. 
uh, for our listeners out there not familiar with Vietnam, there are kind of three major cities in Vietnam. The one in the north is Hanoi. In the center, you have Da Nang. And then in the south, you have Ho Chi Minh City, also known as Saigon. And Hanoi is the political capital of Vietnam. It's where the seat of the government is. You could think of it like the Washington DC of Vietnam. And Saigon is like the New York City of Saigon. It's the yeah. commercial capital. Yeah. Uh, and people, I mean, the whole the city, as, as I've heard, I've visited a few times, but as I've heard, Hanoi is kind of characterized as being a little more stiff, a little less relaxed because you have yeah. like, I don't know, the government, the regulatory powers of the government are more manifest yeah. near the seat of the government than when you get as far from the seat of the government as possible. But, you know, it's possibly, you know, it's possibly a bit more reserved, but, you know, you still have a good time there. You know, that's without a doubt. So it's, it's not that. And I it may not be a fair label to say that it's a, a stiff city. There are many good times that I've had there. Trust me. It's, I'm it's, the king it's of good unfair city. labels. No, no, no. That, that's not the label that you've placed on. I think I've heard that many times. And I, I think having spent almost a year there, I go, actually, this is an amazing city. It's quite a dynamic city. Actually, I really liked it. I, you know, I'd, I'd live there again. But, wow, do I, you know, Ho Chi Minh, for me, really ticks all the boxes. Like in a day-to-day, in a -day, what I do each day, it just perfectly caters for that. What kind of boxes are you ticking? I mean, look at this place. I mean, if warm, you look at warm like, weather or, well, yeah. I mean, actually, it's kind of nice when you're in Hanoi and you've had just unbelievable heat. You know, Hanoi is one of those cities, and I'd never experienced this before, where it's 37 in the day, and you go, okay, fair enough. The sun is just beating down, and it's you know it's going like that for a week or two weeks, but at night it's 35, and it's literally. I remember standing on West Lake, at by the side of the lake, going holy shit, it's hot. It's like middle of the day hot, but there's no sun. <laughs> like, I just haven't been in a city where it was at, at that phenomenon, like, so strong, where you go, my God, it's really hot. And then you just kind of, it just kind of dips into this nice, cool autumn, I guess it is. Autumn? It's not fall, because there's nothing falling. It's autumn. And then you get this winter, and it's actually, it's refreshing, and you're kind of bundling up, but you don't have the the, the, the bullshit in Toronto to deal with, which is mega amounts of snow and frostbite and, you know, all that stuff that I just I have no desire to be in. It kind of cuts all of that off and says, look, we're going to get down to about like 15 degrees. You're going to go brrr, on we're your motorbike and you're going to bundle up. You're talking Celsius, right? Yeah, Celsius. Yeah. yeah. And it's so it's bearable. It's, it's a temperate winter, right? And I, that's actually it's okay. But here, you know, this is like 33 every day. I, I'm okay with that. I, you know, I grew up in, in Toronto and every winter you're just sitting there looking out the window, just dreaming of palm trees. And now that's what I wake up to. I will look out the window and there's palm trees. So I, I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and I went to school in Chicago. Yeah. And I kind of feel that Toronto's not that different from where I where I grew up, but maybe I'm wrong. No, I've only been to Toronto a handful of times. Okay, you've been there and you kind of got times, the gist of it. Uh, I don't know, like it's a bit of a cold city. Not yeah. 
look, Toronto's a great city. There's a lot going on. There's there's a huge arts scene and and blah blah blah. But it does have this kind of cold feeling to it that I you couldn't shake. And that's not just the winter. It's just in in general. It's like if you go right in the CBD of, of Toronto, it's just very concrete. Mm. A lot of buildings and that. If I look at if I look just even just from what I can see here, there's just it's just this eclectic, eclectic mix of all sorts of stuff to look at. And if I'm in the middle of Toronto, it's just it doesn't strike me as is it interesting or I don't know. It just it feels bland. Well, that sounds know. like a Midwest city sure, capital, sure. also. So sure, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say uh, I was. I mean, there's some beautiful parts of Toronto. Don't get me wrong, but I just when I even where I live here in Ho Chi Minh, in in District Two, and I ride down on my motorbike down the main street, and there's just this. I don't know. Just every trip, there's just something different and just something visually striking that's happening. And there's this bustle, and it's impossible to replicate that if I went back to Toronto in any form or matter. How much of that do you think is because you're out of your element? Oh, so yeah, everything is more novel? Yeah. Like but if, I've been here a few years, and you would think that would kind of, you go, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. But there's something so intriguing about going down that main street every day. And there was, there was a small like motorbike shop that uh, you know just sells used bikes, right? And I just drove here on the grab bike to get here. It's just, it's just fucking gone. <laughs> like it's just literally two days ago. Is up. The guy's out in front on the you know plastic chair selling bikes or whatever. You know, you got your, you know, your nouveaus lined up out front or whatever. And today it's just gone. Like it literally desecrated. And I don't know what's going to go up. But every week, just something's changing and evolving. And just you know, every every day there's a different configuration of stalls and what people are doing. I I love it. I absolutely love it. It's so visually striking. Uh, and you know, when I when I lived in Australia, for example, you know, neighborhoods that I grew up in when I was going to high school is identical now. And this is you know, this 25 years later, it's there's there's no I I you know okay the blockbuster is not there now. <laughs> you know, like, but, oh, there's a new real estate agent opened up, you know, 10 years ago. It's just, and I, I find that, I don't know, I, 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 that's not for me. I, I love this vibrance. Thank you. This one's some kind of Korean IPA. Oh, yeah. They do collaborations here, which is great. You know, they mix it up all the time. Uh, I just had a weed ale before uh, you came. Ah, just fantastic. Um, I think... To, to go back to your question before. About, what was my question? <laughs> I don't remember. It's just like, you know, what, what boxes does Ho Chi Minh check? Okay. Yeah. Is, you know, things like this. There's I, no, a no lot joke. of lifestyle stuff going on, right? There's a lot of lifestyle stuff. So if you look at the whole region of Southeast Asia, Vietnam is an absolute gem with things like beer and coffee and, and all of these really sort of things that you really want to have good quality of, right? And they do them very well. You know, the, the, the craft beer scene in Vietnam is, is done tremendously well. And there's a lot of really good brands, you know, like this and, and others that are, that are popping up and they're doing well and they're, they're making good quality beverages. Coffee scene, the same thing. I mean, the Vietnamese, they've, it's a huge industry here and that, uh, we, you know, it's funny when you when you look at any given street in the city, you would think that there's like this 
government decree that every street has to have 10 cafes on it. There's a lot of <laughs> coffee shops here. Yeah. There, and there's a, a lot, lot of them are very good. A lot of them are absolutely fantastic. And if you look at all of these sort of new wave ones that are sort of coming online, it's just fantastic coffee. And the experience is good. The coffee is good. The, 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 the quality of the baristas is, is, is amazing. Love it. Absolutely love it. This is a very natural segue. You have been working on. You can announce it now because this episode is not going to come out for oh, a while. Jeez. So you've been working on a website for exposing the best cafes in Saigon. Yes. Uh, it's a passion project uh, called cafecene.com. And for, for the years that I've lived here, I've just gone... I've gone to a lot of cafes. I've done a lot of sort of nomads, sort of set up the MacBook doing work, and uh, but also just as a coffee enthusiast. And I, I just think, oh my God, there's just so many good cafes. But if you go, you know, just as a as a foreigner, as a tourist coming in here and just going on the Google Maps and you go, coffee's nearby. It's just this barrage of just whatever. It doesn't. It's nonsensical. The signal right? to noise ratio is going to be crazy. It's it's insane. It's insane. You don't know what's good or bad. So I'm I'm trying to put together a platform that just shares sort of you know a curated listing of very good coffee experiences, and you know to the benefit of people that are coming to Vietnam for the first time. Some of the very best experiences are not on Main Street. You gotta, you know, you gotta sort of go through alleyways and up staircases and sort of, you know, trek your way off the beaten path. But you're highly rewarded for that. You know, you you get something that is unique and I don't know, just fascinating. Like the amount of effort that's put into, you know, the the, the venue itself and the care that's put into the coffee. This is worlds apart than just going over to a franchise or whatever. This is the indie scene is done incredibly well here. So it's trying to basically represent that. When some people go on vacation, they try to find the best beaches. For the most part, when I go on vacation, I try to find where is the best coffee in that city. Thank, thank you. Yes, likewise. I, I just came back from Japan, which I'm sure you're, you know, not, not a stranger to. And, um, there were some amazing coffee shops there. Where, so, where did you go? Uh, I was in Kyoto and, and uh, Tokyo and, and sort of all the sort of prefectures around there and, and got a decent number of cafes. So I'll probably put those on the site as well because they're just, they're, they're incredibly unique. And, you know, some of them are just very artistic in their design, just very strange. You sort of go into this upper floor and there's sort of like stadium seating around the periphery of it and then a giant tree in the middle and it's all painted white. And you sit there and you have your coffee and there's like lanterns around the side and kind of really chilled out indie music. And you go, eh, okay, all right, I'm, is, okay, I'm okay with this. Is this. the tree painted white? No. Okay. No, except so, the tree. Okay. Everything is white except for the tree, which except is a real tree. And, and the people in there. White. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They, they didn't go completely bonkers. In Kyoto, there is a coffee shop called Percent Arabica. Oh my goodness, on the corner. They have maybe two or three locations there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did go to one of them. And then now they've actually got, I'm going to misquote them. So I'm going to say 13 locations worldwide, but it's Are probably wrong. It's probably 20 by now. I have to say they did a very good cappuccino there. Uh, yes, very nice. And it was the, the one I went to was just sort of a very small but nicely put together. Uh, coffee was good. Yes, fantastic. Yes. So did you go to the one that's 
close to the river or close to Gion Shijo? Oh, geez, I don't know. I was there for a few days. Okay. So Japan has two types of coffee houses. Yes. That are two types of good coffee houses. They have um, the traditional Japanese coffee house. Yes. Where the the main dish on the menu is called uh, Vina or Wina Kohi. Yes. So it's Vienna style coffee they think yes it's a brewed coffee but, with, but it hits the spot it's a brewed coffee yeah. with um whipping cream yeah but they're very precise like they weigh the beans they grind them it's like doing a pour over right they, like, yeah it's a pour over yeah it is a, it's a pour over so they they weigh the beans they grind the beans they they weigh the grounds to make sure that it's the same Wait. Because, you know, the molecules count. Yeah, and then yeah. they do a pour over. This is, this is precision. You know what? I got I to gotta respect the craft in that. You know, this is really precision stuff, and they're really trying to get it to this to a level of perfection. I, I have to admire that. I mean, if you're going to sit there and pump out coffees every day, why not do a beautiful job of that? Uh, you know, it inspired me, actually, when I went to Japan and I came back. It's funny enough, it was actually easier to get that whole Hario kit of, like, you know, the gooseneck kettle and the the v60 pour over kit and all that actually it was easier for some reason for me to just get it here in Minh. <laughs> so i would have you know would have actually had to come over and and actually be imported and for some reason i just basically went down the street from here and was able to get the whole kit and and start experimenting with that and getting a nice hand burr grinder and that there's something there's something very satisfying about that whole process of doing coffee, whether you're, you're setting up your machine and doing a, you know, a, a cappuccino or you're, you're burr grinding and then you're doing that whole thing to make this ultimate cup of coffee and you're refining that process as you go. I don't know there's something so good about that. Uh, you know, Even if you think of in Japan or in China, th that whole tea serving ceremony process there, it's not just, you know, here's your cup of tea. It's There's a whole thing that happens, right? There's certain sequence of events that happen. I, I really have a lot of admiration for that. And you know, I think there's too much of just, you know, slopping something into a, a, a paper cup now that's lost all of that process that goes into it. And apparently robots are going to make our coffee at some point. So it'll be so distant from sort of this artisanal version of putting heart into what you're going to consume. I don't know. I yeah. So that's going overboard. In but. Japanese martial arts, they have a term called ki, which means kind of like energy force. Yeah. The, the ki is the same as Chinese chi. Yeah, yeah. Like tai chi. Meaning means life energy. And... There's another concept in Japanese martial arts called zanshin, which means mm. remaining mind, which is like if you were to have water in a bowl and you do this, yeah. there's still water in the bowl. Oh, right? There's still a few drops, right? Yeah. And what that means is like if I was to cut you with my sword and run past you, I can't just drop my guard suddenly. I can't give up at that moment. No. Right? You might still be alive or you might have a friend. You have to kind of keep up your awareness. Yeah, the friends in the, yeah, behind the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when I saw these uh, people pouring the pour over of the coffee at yeah. a fairly typical traditional Japanese coffee house, yeah. not, a sec not a third wave coffee house, after they've weighed it and they're doing the pouring, they're pouring, they're looking, pour, look. Poor look. Yeah. They don't take their eyes off the coffee no, no, until they're, it's done. 
they're fixated on this. You know? They want this to be the perfect cup. For so you. all the concentration, all the energy is going into making that cup of coffee. Could a could a robot make a better cup? Maybe, but eh, it I don't removes, the make it, it removes the ritual from the tea ceremony this from the coffee ritual. ceremony. Yes, thank you. It's, it's less satisfying for the humans. For the humans, it's less satisfying. Yep. If you remove the the ritual. Right? Think think of you know uh, in going to the Japanese restaurants where they cook everything in front of you and the guys you know like knives flying around and all of that and they're doing all sorts of it's it's a spectacle but there's something so it, you know there's a there's that ritual that he does each time to prepare that meal there's something so you know fundamentally human about that you'd hate a robot arm to be doing that because it wouldn't do that it would just it would do what it's programmed to do and there's no uh, personality or character or charm in it i, I don't know like you know being in digital for long enough you, you start to be aware of all this you start to be aware of are we dehumanizing everything man that's a great topic and then uh, while you're talking about that i thought about something else so i hope i don't yeah. ruin that flow by going no, back no, but no. one of the critiques i would give a negative critique i'm going to would give about vietnam in the past yeah would be that there is this lack of attention to detail a lack of ritual a lack of concentration on a task for an extended period of time and more of a concept of it's just good enough let's get it out there sure but recently ah it does seem to be changing yes for whatever reason i went to a, a sushi restaurant this week here in vietnam and the vietnamese sushi chefs were using zanshin remaining mind con I don't know if they were trained to do it or what, but as they sliced the fish, their, I could tell their mind was 100% Focus. on that activity. They're they in the flow. Yeah. They weren't using their cell phone and cutting the fish at the same time. That <laughs> yeah. wasn't happening. Oh, look. look and this is, this is seen in the coffee scene as well. I'm seeing these baristas where they're just, there's this in, intense focus on making a perfect cup. And I... Yeah, I, and I'm seeing much more evidence of that across the board. Think of think of in terms of digital design as well. Just the amount of craftsmanship that's going into some of the products here. Yeah, Abs the absolutely. first time that when I first came to Vietnam, the state of design was very poor. Yes, um, it involved a lot of neon green paired with glitter and neon pink. Uh, what, what's wrong with that? <laughs> and it was just kind of garish in general. Yeah. But I, you know, how long ago was that? That was like that, eight to ten years ago. Yeah, but that—that's not just Vietnam. News, newsflash: that was a, a, a sizable chunk of the world. Was it? <laughs> yeah. But it's been getting very sophisticated. Every year, it gets more and more sophisticated. I don't know if this is a because of economics, because the country's been booming for the last twenty years. Fantastic. I don't know if it's because of the information age and access to information. That's certainly part of it. But it's been improving significantly. I there, there's an interview a couple interviews I did with students who were oh cool asking me what's the state of Vietnamese design. Yeah. 6 or so years ago I did these yeah. interviews and I even at that time I said that there'd been a lot of progress, but now I mean, you know, but I, I talk to designers now, and they're just unbelievably passionate, and they're hungry. And they, these are the two key ingredients. 
Now, when you when you look globally right now, like at what I do with UX stuff, there's this huge wave of junior designers coming on board because of all the accessibility of the the learning. You know, like you can go into, you can just pluck down some money, go into an intense sort of immersive course for four weeks, get all the basics covered, get a little bit of exposure to some real world company stuff, right? Graduate from that. And in a lot of cases, companies are just standing by the door to pluck you and, and you know, when you've graduated and bring you on, right? But when you, when you look at the fact that on, on a mass scale, how many people are accessing online courses, online university, these immersive uh, things, it all adds up to a ton of people in the, trying to join the workforce. And there's only so many UX spots, you know, particularly in, in Southeast Asian countries. What separates them? What, you know, if you have 20, 30, 40 juniors all applying for a job and you're the guy that's recruiting and hiring for that position, what are you looking for? Ultimately, it comes back to this pure sense of passion for design. Uh, you know, the, the, with, with this, you, they'll go through all, and they'll crash course, they'll do online, they'll do all these things to kind of get the, the basics covered. You know as a recruiter that there are gaps, there are tons of gaps there, but when they come in on these interviews or when you, when you look at their portfolio, there's this strong sense of passion. What that really is, is this, it's kind of like a promise. It's a promise to say that whatever gaps I have, I'll take care of them. It's, it's that passion will drive me through and it'll give me the strength and the determination and the grit to fill them out. Love it. Love it. And you can tell if you, if you interview 20 people and they're all coming in, drudging in going, yeah, yes, I do job, you know, some Don Norman quotes and blah, blah, blah. But there's always those one or Who's two. Don Norman? Oh, quite a, quite a famous designer. Okay. Yeah. Quite a, one of, sort of the, one of the, the grandfathers of, you know, design and Apple and all that kind of stuff. But I think, uh, there'll be those one or two candidates that come in and there's just, you can tell when they're walking in the door, they're just so excited about doing design work and they, they, they're just passionate about it. They're just, they want to soak up knowledge and they, they just spend every day thinking about how things are designed and how they can do design. And this is, is wonderful. So it's kind of going back to these people that do something very precise because they, they love it. That's, you know, that's such an amazing thing. I don't know if uh, my awkward pause now is just because I'm drunk, because uh, I'm very, quite weak for alcohol. I enjoy I enjoy alcohol, but yeah. I never I don't have a lot of practice drinking to excess, so my tolerance is quite low. That's all right. Um, or if I'm just quite uh, enamored by the simple but profound situation we happen to find ourselves in at this moment. <laughs> I don't know. It's these kind of moments that make me love being in Vietnam, and I. And I say that because there's, it's this hub. It's this hub of people that have been here for, you know, eight years or many of them. There's people coming in and out. There's, there's people that were born here that had left that are coming back, which I, I find fascinating and have talked to many recently looking for business opportunities because of the prosperity here. And you just have sort of this nice stable group of people that call it home 
people that are coming in and out that, you know, just on vacation and, and they say, hey, you know, John's here, you should hook up with him. He kind of knows a few spots and, you know, he's always game to catch up. And then there's people that really want to set roots here and see the opportunity here. What a, what a cool mix. You know, it's, and I, every week I'm just, every week or every couple of weeks, I'm just meeting some different people that bring different perspective and a different story into my life. And where do you, where do you get that? Otherwise, I'm sure there's a few other places in the region or in the world that are similar to that, but Jesus Christ, I, it certainly keeps me here. So here's the, this situation we find ourselves in, our audience, no matter where we might be in the world. You have places like Canada, the United States, Australia, Great Britain, France, sure. Scandinavia, where the economies are quite mature. The skill level, uh, Japan, Korea, sure. okay. skill level quite developed, but the economies have had their, had their booms, had their bubbles That's true. already, had. right? Uh, or still China have. even had its bubble already, and it's kind of in some post-bubble stage, I'm sure, at this point. Vietnam has been having a bubble for a long time now, probably still in the bubble. A lot of economic growth year upon year. A lot of skill growth year upon year. And in the past, let's say if we were to go back 10 years, maybe even six months, I don't know. There's a dynamic in the world where if you're from one of these other locations, if you are high-skilled, highly educated, and you have a lot of savings relative to a developing nation, mm. you can come into a developing nation where wages are essentially low and, unfortunately, skill levels and education are comparatively low. And then you can leverage this power dynamic to your own advantage. Sure. In some kind of neo-colonialism <laughs> where where you're leveraging your access to capital, your domain specific knowledge, yeah. Yeah. and your your skills and your education. Sure. In order to extract value for yourself in some way. And okay. and for the place that you're providing that to. Yeah. So you can come to a place like Vietnam, set up shop, make a company and provide a service where you're able to, there's like, it's in some way similar, to, similar to like a currency arbitrage where I don't know that kind of pulling that term out of my ass, but some similar to currency arbitrage where you're sure. like, I see a Delta between a skill level and a price and a market, and I'm going to try to capitalize on that delta. Okay. But that delta is definitely shrinking. Yeah. And I think in a few years, I don't know. I don't know if the if the if the if the oceans don't rise and swallow all of civilization. I hope not. Then in maybe ten years, we're in a different kind of world than we are right now. Where I like that because of the internet there's not really this salary delta between one country to another. We're in a truly global community at that point where 
protectionism and free trade agreements and all these things stop having the teeth that they currently have or that they have had for the past few hundred years? I don't know. Look, I don't think any of it really makes sense or is necessary in terms of having all of these currencies and different power outlets and driving on different sides of streets and all of this, but you can understand where it all came about. But at some point, you, you can you can imagine, yeah, you can imagine a world where all of this has kind of become more universal and more just, you know, what, what does a passport look like 20 years from now? Like, what is that? That's it's an interesting thing to even think about. Does it exist even? I keep opining for a world in which we can get a global citizenship, which allows us to live and work in any country. Does, does that mean I don't have to go through my work permit process? Exactly. You wouldn't uh, have to go through your work permit process, which, by the way, is a lot easier than a Vietnamese trying to get an American that, work that's permit. That's true. <laughs> you know? <laughs> both, both ways, it's not a fun experience. Yeah. Trying to lock down employment, which is your key... Your key way of saying, yes, I'm a suitable person to have in your country for a period of time, that's an interesting way of looking at it, is that you have to, securing work, your your economic viability, is the only determiner, really, to becoming part of a, you know, living in a country, establishing yourself in a country for a, a set period of time, which can be then renewed based on the discretion of, and that's, that's not here, I mean, that's, that's everywhere, that's just how it works, right? And... It's a strange concept is you have to, if, if you can prove that you're a good worker and you know your stuff, we'll grant you the ability for a period of time to stay in this country. But I, I don't know, it, it, surely it's more than that because you're contributing into society in more ways than just making a company profit. But what is that? Like, how would you pin that to say one person should come in versus another? The whole thing is, ridiculous and i think every year as the world evolves it becomes more ridiculous yes it hasn't become less ridiculous it's become more ridiculous yeah because as we have greater access to transportation and greater access to information these arbitrary distinctions between nations become less and less meaningful Oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. So, you know, all the stuff where you're trying to wire money to another country and you you suck up $100 worth of fees just to, you know, basically send a database line from one bank to another. When is that going to disappear? You know, I know I know all the crypto guys are working on this right now, but, you know, just simple stuff like that, there are there are unreal barriers in front of that and their their commercial interests or whatever preventing you from just taking money that you have and just giving it to someone else not incurring all sorts of fees and days and, and i don't know or even giving stuff. it to yourself or like, even giving it to myself <laughs> you know give, moving, which, moving it from one bank account to a different bank account which if you have bank accounts in multiple countries you know that's not a lot of fun when you run out of funds in one country and you need to shuffle money around not a lot of fun even now this is 2020 this is unbelievable. Yeah. Who would have thought? We were supposed to be flying around in cars, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to not incur $100 worth of fees to juggle money between banks. So I feel like we're in this situation where we have a parallel, parallel worlds or parallel systems 
there's probably at least three tiers of this parallel system, probably many more. This is the hops talking, by the way. It's not me. Well, it's and there are many hops in that beer, so, you know. <laughs> Where you have a conventional old world style of thinking, which is like, I'm a citizen of a country and I work in that country and my access to information and mobility is quite limited. In, yeah. in a sense, I'm like a serf serving a landlord, right? Sure. In some sense, right? <laughs> if you are a tax-paying, hard-working citizen of any country in the world, you're essentially a serf serving a landlord. Interesting analogy. And then you've got uh, people like you and I who have been like, hey, I'm going to try living and working in various other countries. If I was Vietnamese, I would be called an immigrant. But because I'm from Canada or America, I'm called yeah. an expat. It is strange. Yeah. You know? And I thought more and more about that terminology recently because it was brought up in a YouTube video or something that I watch. And at first I kind of go, okay, guys, you know, let's not get too sensitive about terminology. But actually then I did start thinking, you're, you're right. It's like there's this certain terminology and you're like, well, is that deserved or where did that come from? And maybe at some point in time it was applicable. But now I'm thinking, am I really an expatriate? Like, I don't know. You are. I, yes. You, but, you are simultaneously an expatriate and an immigrant. But I'm, yes, correct. Regardless of what anyone else thinks. <laughs> but if I'm in Canada, nobody's called an expat. They're, they're immigrants. When I was uh, in film school, one of my professors in their own body of work had made a, made a documentary called Expat, which was about Americans who had expatriated to Canada. Uh, sure. United States oh, yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a bit of that happening. Yeah, yeah. And this was kind of most of the people she had been interviewing is kind of Vietnam era, Vietnam War era people, maybe on to 10 years, 20 years after that. Yeah. I mean, I was in school 20 years ago, so, and I don't think, yeah, well, it, I don't think it was likewise. a new body, a new thing in her portfolio. It was probably like a 10 year old film, yeah, even. So, the whole thing does, I don't, this is kind of weird, but the whole thing does seem to be a power dynamic type thing. But like, you know what, what's interesting is I, I lived in uh, Jakarta for about a year and a half. And during that time, uh, uh, you know, particularly for the first seven months or so, I, I worked at a startup incubator. And, you know, the, the premise of it was we would get all these really super smart people off the street that knew certain aspects of technology and we'd all come together and devise these different business ideas that would solve challenges in, in Jakarta, right? And there, there's ample, there's, there's no shortage of problems to solve, right? I freaking love Jakarta. It's an awesome city. And, you know, many people would say it's sort of this polarizing, oh, I don't like the traffic and pollution. But on the other, the flip side of that, it's an amazing place to live. So in this environment where you're trying to solve problems through mobile technology, all these things, it might be how, how things are bought or transportation or you name it, you do realize very quickly why things are the way they are, right? Like why this has never changed in 50 years or why that thing hasn't progressed beyond what it has. 
and you realize these limiters in terms of trying to import things into the country or trying to do this or trying to do that, there are limiters there. There's are barriers. There are roadblocks that there isn't sufficient technology to overcome yet. They're not insurmountable, but there are at this present time, it's, 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 it's too much, it's too overwhelming to cr devise a business to overcome it. And so you realize that very quickly as a startup. I mean, if you have enough capital and all that, yes, you can make these things happen. But as a startup, you become acutely aware that things are the way they are, you know, and, then, and, and at some point they'll change, but you can't pressure it too much to change because it'll push back at you viciously and, and you know, yeah, it, it was just a fascinating thing. You just sort of go in there in this hero mentality, like, oh, we've got all these things that we can solve with technology and mobile apps. And no, no, there's a few things you can do, but don't don't get cocky. You're, the, the city will put you back in your place and we, could do, we did some great stuff. Don't get me wrong. But you do realize that things are the way they are. It's, it's cool. And, and, you know, Ho Chi Minh or, or any city, there's, there's certain processes or things about the city that you want to change, but just cannot, you know, they, they must be that way for a period of time until something, you know, it's like someone with a habit there, there has to be that bottom before they can lift themselves or mm. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a cool thing. I, I'm so happy for that time to just be for a number of months, thinking up and devising businesses to solve problems and, and realizing the, the realities of it, the, the realities of, well, you go, well, geez, why hasn't someone done this? And then you get in there and like, you know, X number of weeks of research and you go, oh, <laughs> ah, okay. Yeah, I got you. All right. Sure. But when I was very young, like high school age, university age, whenever I travel to other countries, I would see, business opportunities. And I think it's just because I'm coming from a very different perspective than the people who are living in that area. At the time, that was my thought. Like, oh, I'm coming at ideas from a really different perspective. So I see problems that they don't see. So I have yeah. solutions that they're not coming up with. Sure. Though you, the point you just made is interesting. It's like, maybe they did try and just there was certain conditions politically economically within that community within that country that made yeah we tried that thing and there was too much resistance and so we gave up yeah, or just too much too much red tape or you know too too, too many barriers yeah right. i mean that's not to put anyone off of of doing these things or or pushing the boundaries it's, it's nothing to do with that it's just it was it was just quite telling that you you start to appreciate why things are the way they are, you know. I wonder if I should change my white balance to tungsten instead of daylight. We are so orange. <laughs> well, I, you know, I went to Vung Tao and I, I, <laughs> I, I, had, one, I had one trip where uh, I, I was a noob and I was on my bike without gloves, but I had my, you know, the sunscreen on. <laughs> and about... I don't know, hour and a half, two hours in, I look at my hands and they're bright red. And you know, right? Like usually you get red later in the evening. <laughs> they're red now. Like they're like, I'm witnessing redness. <laughs> so you were sunburned. I was like beyond. Yeah. And I've actually, I actually damaged my skin from that. Like I actually totally roasted it like uh, rotisserie style on what? the handlebar. 
my first design job, official design job, I was an intern at a new media company back when new media was a term cool. that people used. Yeah. That's uh, cool. For that new new media is now just media. This is media. <laughs> my professor had started one of my professors at university started this company and I joined his company as an intern. Oh, cool, yeah. And one of our first clients was a skin doctor who wanted to make some CD-ROM called Skin Sense, which was like this educational CD-ROM about skin cancer risks. Yeah, okay. Right? And it was this whole... Was it a hot seller? <laughs> I think it was free. I don't even know. We were just hired to help him make this thing, but he just wanted to make some kind of engaging experience about how you should protect your skin because yeah, yeah. he was very passionate about people having skin damage and skin cancer. Yeah, and at the time, if you're trying to distribute CD-ROMs, that's not fun. <laughs> Ask AOL. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now, if you want to have a really nice, like, you know, skin cancer portal, you just get a domain and bang, done. It's just, uh, but, you know, back then, that was brutal, trying to get that out there to enough people that you can have impact and it's hard to produce the, you know, the multimedia for that CD so someone doesn't put it in and run it and go, oh, my God, this is lame and take it out. You, that's it's, it's a significant amount of effort. Yeah. No, it was like, I don't even know. You know, I was an employee, not the boss. So I don't know what yeah. they got paid well, to make Then you know thing, it's, but... it's a lot of work to that goes into making something like that. Yeah, for right? sure. Where were we using, like Flash or like? Uh Either Micromedia Director or Flash. I don't yeah. remember what that Which project means used. It's a ton of work yeah. to go into that CD-ROM. And then you're trying to basically flog physical CDs, which is just like, that's that's a tough gig. Yeah, or give away it. Yeah. I don't know if it was... It's hard enough to get people to go to a domain name now, let alone, <laughs> you know, sending off CDs to people. Um, when we met, you mentioned a that one of the... The, the favorite things that you like about your time in Vietnam is the motorbike trips you've taken. Just the motorbike in general. I, I absolutely love it. You know, when I was in other countries, I, I loved my car uh, and, and really enjoyed it. But here, it is, is just a totally different game. It is absolutely one of the greatest joys of being here. And I think a lot of people, when they come into the country and they, they sort of come out of the airport and they... I remember a friend of mine came to visit me from Melbourne and he came and landed and I'm trying to have a, uh, a cohesive conversation with him in the taxi on the way back to my apartment. And he's just looking out at the street, trying to figure out the traffic. He's literally, he can't hold a conversation because of it. Another passion project I wanted to do is I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the soundscape in Vietnam. So, you know, you have the Bop Sao Day guy and the, you know, all of these sounds. Bop and, Sao Day. Yeah. And, and, you know, as a tourist, if you're staying in the hotel and you hear all these sounds going on in the middle of the night, and I've heard a lot of people go, I, how do you sleep with this? And how do you, how do you deal with this? And there's so much noise and I, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, what you actually realize that over the years of living here, you realize if you didn't hear them, it would be a problem. You know, it's that right. whole intro of like vanilla, uh, vanilla sky, you know, where Tom Cruise comes out into 
Times Square and there's nobody there and and it's 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 strange and confusing. There's something very settling about having all of these street vendors and and the the, the soundscape that you hear in Vietnam. It's very unique, and it's very. I don't know. It's it's very dynamic. I I, I literally want to just take a, a high quality microphone and record all this for prosperity's sake. I'm I'm not shitting you. The reason I say that is if you look at how e-commerce will eventually play out, all these little merchants and and wet markets and all that will slowly you know disappear i guess unfortunately that soundscape is gone and to record that for prosperity's sake to say hey you know like 10 20 30 years ago whatever this is what it sounded like when you were traveling down the street in in ho chi minh city and all of these vendors were shouting stuff on on pa speakers and i think that would be an amazing project just to capture that in some way that you can feel that you're there if you put some headphones on. I don't know. I, I think it's all going to be gone, and sadly. And unfortunately, all these you know e-commerce monsters are going to gobble it all up. And uh, you know all these little street vendors that I pass by every day will be gone. So a moment ago, I was in many ways expounding upon the virtues of positive globalization yes we're gonna have no more passports we can live and work any country in the world your salary is going to be dependent on your skills and not on your citizenship and it's going to be a fantastic utopia that was pretty cool the counterpoint is that it's hard to imagine in vietnam but the counter at in the extreme scenario, the counterpoint is there's no more variety in coffee. Everything is Starbucks. Kill me. Right? I mean, that's the counter. Yeah. That's the oh, potential look, just, dark just side me. of that just coin. Kill me. Yeah. Because, like, why? Why? Right? The As, variety, the variety that we see in front of us now, that is life. If you take all that away, I, what is it? What's in the left? majority of the United States, Main Street America, which had a variety of hardware stores, has been replaced by Home Depot and the variety of delis and grocery shops has been replaced by uh, whatever, whatever Walmart. you know, Walmart, Walmart or it's Safeway. Good, it's or, the good enough at the right value. It hits that target spot that everybody says, you know what? I'm I'm not going to go to the deli anymore. I'm just I'm just going to get the okay product here because it's two dollars cheaper. That's what it comes down to. And the and, wet the wet marts in Saigon will be replaced by Big C, or whatever comes after that. And yeah. will the coffees be replaced by Starbucks, or will they all be replaced by? Uh, What's that? What's that one called? Like good ah uh, or whatever? Good ah. Uh, what's that? Maybe I'm saying <laughs> it wrong. But there's, you know, of course, there's always new ch chains that pop up and try to dominate the market. Oh sure, and th there's always going to be a place for chains. I'm okay with chains. There's nothing wrong with them. And you know, if you're if you're working and you're in an office tower and one of those chains is at the bottom of your tower, you're likely going to be a patron there, it's, and then you get your caffeine fix and. But for all the other times, you, you want that diversity of just experiences and something different. What is that barista coffee bean roasting process going to create for me at 
this time, you know, like if, if, you know, if you have a, if you always rely on McDonald's for your burgers, that's, you know, that's why you have the gourmet burger scene and you have all of these other facets of burgers to really enjoy what a burger actually is. And it's the diversity. I mean, as, as humans, we crave some level of diversity. We want some stable aspect of it. There's a sort of a, you know, I don't know. What, what do you call it? There's, there's, there's some part of our lives that has to have stability, but there's also this part that yearns for this dynamic part of it that wants a different experience each time it, it has it. You can't just eat broccoli every day. Your, your body will tell you, no. Did you know that uh, they've done studies about diet, and when you're presented with a variety of food, you eat more food. So if you, if you gave a subject or a community, a tribe, one type of food, they will limit how much they eat. They won't overeat. Yeah. But if you then present a second food that's like not the same as the first food, even though they were full, they'll get a second stomach and they'll eat that new thing. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. This is like, you know, for, for in terms of design, this is why I focus a lot right now on behavioral economics. If I'm doing e-commerce websites or anything that's selling things, understanding how we think and what motivates us and what what compels us to, to make one decision over another or pick something versus another, that's, that's, that's really a fundamental that, you, that a designer should understand when they're making these kinds of products, like an e-commerce site or whatever. Understand what, why do people buy what they buy? Why do they eat what they eat? or when they eat or how much they eat. This is such a fascinating topic. I, I've, I've been absolutely loving just digging into this subject matter now more than ever and going through books and whatever I can get my hands on. It's, it's such a fascinating topic about how irrational we are. <laughs> okay, as a designer, how do you balance? This is the right design decision to provide the most value for my customer who's paying me against, yeah. counterpointed against, but that customer's product is eventually going to ruin the world. Ruin the world. Well, I mean, I'm kind of trying to paint the most well, extreme at, at, picture here. Yeah, at, the, at the very, you know, prior to that, if I'm going into design engagements, I, I want them to align to what I, I believe in. And that may be a luxury I have at this stage of my career, but you know, you're, you're trying to actually mitigate having those kinds of questions come up in your career. At the beginning, you're kind of taking what you can to get experience and build up a portfolio. But where I'm at now, you, you pick and choose very carefully, and it's amazing what you say no to. <laughs> because, That's, because And it's that exact question where I'm like, I, I don't need to be involved in that. It's not... For instance, as a as a uh, Give, give me a hypothetical yeah, yeah. example. This is yeah. a uh, an exercise, a hypothetical sure. exercise. A thought experiment. That's what those are called. Um, let's say Amazon's not where they are today. We go back in time a little bit. Okay. And somebody says, hey, there's this new company called Amazon, but their design kind of sucks. Why don't you help them have a better shopping cart experience? Sure. And you're like, yeah, that sounds... Are they going to pay me? And you're like, yeah, they're going to pay you. Okay, that sounds like a challenge. Yeah. And you design the perfect shopping experience, and you come up with one-click shopping. Such a cool, you know. Yeah. And now, 
And as a designer, you were like, I'm just trying to make this within this bubble. I'm trying to make this product as good as it can be. I'm trying to be the best designer I can be. Sure. But an unforeseen consequence was all the bookstores in the world went out of business. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's yeah. Just like shit. I wasn't trying to like, cause all the independent bookstores to go all business. Yeah, I was just trying to make this but, one thing good. Yes. But, and you know, there, there will still be a niche market for those bookstores. I hope, but that's also the same reason why there's no, you know, video rental stores and there's no many other things because uh, it's better. I guess so. Because if I can click something in one click and it shows up at my door. So this is the, this is actually, this is a progression thing, a society progression thing. As I understand it, the members of the Manhattan Project, they were like just so fixated on the novelty of the problem they were trying to solve, the engineering problem. Yes. And it wasn't until like kind of they were past the point of no return that they started to think about the uh potential could could be a bit of an issue yeah. use cases yes <laughs> yes yes anyways i mean design it's hard to know if you're doing the right thing or the wrong thing you know, you know? even even if you you said to me this is where it's going to go i still would have wanted to participate because it's touched that many lives in a positive way because of it was a frictionless shopping experience and that was what you were brought on board to to design for and you've done that properly that's not to say amazon's ux is perfect by no means but they've gotten they hit certain things perfectly in such a way that they just had this mass adoption but they you know these guys that basically fell to the way uh, off to the side and weren't able to survive and compete with that i've mixed feelings you know in some industries i think they deserved it and they had to go. This was a natural attrition of that marketplace. I'm okay with it. And other, maybe it's my own affinity to that particular market that didn't want them to go. And, you know, what's it for me to pick and choose who gets to survive these, you know, technological transformations or not? You know, the, the big one that I see coming up is, you know, autonomous cars. If we look at the next... I don't know, what, 20 years or so, 10, 20, 30 years, whatever. Maybe some, five. Some, <laughs> yeah, some point in our lives, right? If autonomous takes hold completely and all the roads are reconfigured to be autonomous only because you can't have these wacky human drivers mixed in with the robots, um, you know, what does that look like as a... As a citizen in a city that needs to get around what is that experience and user journey and and how does that improve my life or or hold my life back you know the more you start thinking about it when it becomes completely when you become as a citizen completely incapable of taking yourself in distance you know you use a bicycle or whatever but when you realize that to get to the other side of the town you're depending on likely what a few companies that are monopolized that whole network of, of vehicles to get you around. If they or governments or whatever impose limits on how you can move around, what, what has that done for us? Does it become scary? Do they say, Hey, we've decided to put a curfew so that 
you know, after 2 a.m., you can only come home. You can't go out. Or, you know, certain times of the day, you can only do this or that. Or certain areas of the city cost more than others. So it becomes not a net neutrality issue, but a place neutrality issue. This is an extremely fascinating topic because I have such strong opinions arguing for both points. And it's coming. You know, there's a lot of things that are coming technologically that are going to blow our minds. You know, I think we're in a hot spot right now in the next 20 years where all of these technologies are going to converge that are immature right now. So it's it's the AI, it's it's 5G, it's the augmented reality, and there's a few others that are suddenly going to mature to the point where they become really viable at, at a consumer level. You know, things like AR are starting to already be you know, uh, adopted in, in industrial and commercial aspects, but they'll eventually trickle their way down into in a format that a typical consumer will go, I want to purchase that. I want that to be part of my life. And it's a pair of Ray-Bans I put on that augments my day-to-day life. That That's going to come. All of these advances in screen technology, battery technology, communications with 5G, all of these things will all come together and suddenly... We're not carrying these phones around anymore, which are ridiculous, to be honest. It'll be quite a different form factor of our technological existence. There's two issues. Let's take autonomous driving and let's take airport security. Oh, I love it. Okay. So these are two issues that are kind of parallel because in many cases, in the case of airport security, the question that you have to make a decision is between freedom and safety and for a long time most of the world's governments especially the united states but pretty much everyone else followed suit they were like we want to prioritize safety over freedom so please take off your shoes and please don't have a water with you right And let me do a complete body scan of you with this computer. Yeah. So now you have a lot of safety, but you have no freedom. Don't have the freedom to just keep your shoes on and not get athlete's foot. And you don't have the, (laughs) you know, you don't have the freedom to. I I think it's called airport foot. Good. So now you can get air, you can get athlete's foot and be thirsty. Airport foot. You can get airport foot or be thirsty, (laughs) but at least you're not going to have a bombing on the airplane. But if you if you look at the you know the 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 layers of screening, you do realize, and I think you know George Carlin or someone put this fairly better than I ever could, is that it's it's a succession of fairly poor levels of filtering that you have to go through to get onto a plane. Like if and, if if the metal scanner didn't work, well let's put you through this or I don't know. I, and I would almost. I don't know if I'm in the majority or the minority here, but for myself, I would rather have freedom than safety in that case. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Now let's look at... That's easy for us to say, given where we live or have lived, for for people in countries that safety is not quite up to snuff, maybe they would reprioritize that. But we're, we're talking really about the Here's civilization we want to live in in where we are. If your flight has the potential to get to a high-value target, like <laughs> the Pentagon or the World Trade Center, okay. maybe your flight should have more security, more scrutiny. Maybe. But if you're going from Boise, Idaho to 
somewhere else in Idaho. Yeah. Just relax Everyone's a little favorite bit. trip. Yeah. Just relax a little bit. That's true. Yes. But this is not that different from autonomous driving because autonomous driving will make driving more safe eventually. But For sure. Free, freedom comes at so many different levels, though. You, I mean, you're talking about bodily freedom of like, you know, not freedom. Sorry, I'm going to have to rephrase this one. Oh, dear. So freedom comes at different levels and safety comes at different levels. If I look at my life in Western countries in terms of freedom, how that's expressed here is, is in Vietnam is considerably different. And I'd use the motorbike analogy to say that it gives me freedom, the sense of freedom beyond what I felt that I had anywhere else. If I look at going to meet with you, for example, if I was to do that in Canada, Australia, or America, or wherever, you know, driving a car, likely greater distances, finding somewhere to park, walking from there and, and getting to the venue and that, it's a substantially different experience than just hopping on my bike and literally just dumping it at the front door and just being here for a, a minuscule amount of money is that freedom as well. There's, I mean, there's this different layers of freedom that are quite fascinating to explore. As freedom increases, safety decreases. That's my theorem. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. yeah. As freedom increases, risk increases, I guess. Or are, are there caveats to that? I don't think there are. The most free person is on the edge of stopping to exist okay. at any moment. So having been here for many years and for me being in the region, because, you know, everywhere in Southeast Asia, I think, teaches you this. I was very particular about following the letter of everything in the Western countries that I lived in. And here, realizing that you can kind of you just go with the flow. And Going with the flow is the safest action you can take here. It's not, necessarily, yes, it's not yes. necessarily the most free action, though. Going against the flow would be more freedom. But there's but it is safer something to go about with the you're, flow. You're kind of letting go of certain details and certain things that feels very good here. You, you, you just, you're not so caught up in the detail of things here. You just that realize get... that they'll, it'll happen. Yeah. And it'll it'll be okay. The world's not going to end because you didn't do this or that. It's okay. Whereas in other countries, is there's this very strong emphasis on this, this, this. You got to do this. I don't know. I there's something quite liberating about it. I don't know if it's sort of the palm tree sim syndrome with it when you get into a tropical country that suddenly you look at per the perspective that you take on things is a bit different. Here's a here's a country I know nothing about. Germany. Okay. But they are known for, at an arm's distance, uh, following process you to, a, to, think so. to a stifling amount. The trains run on time. Yeah. Yet, the speed limit on the Autobahn is very high. I like that speed right? limit. So, I think that should be adopted. That's the, kind speaking of, of universal adoption and like, you know, making things across the world, I think Autobahn should be introduced everywhere. So I wanted to come back to autonomous cars, at least in the United States, yes, because please. who knows what's going to happen with those in Vietnam. I don't think they would work for the next 10 years. 
But in the United States, that could work, I guess. Yeah. And thirty to 60,000 people a year die in automobile accidents, which is True. like higher than coronavirus and probably higher than cancer and higher than terrorism and yeah, it's a lot. probably it's higher a than chunk war. Of people. It's yeah. a lot. And and not only that, that doesn't speak to all the people that have been, you know, significantly impacted through just an unbelievable amount of like. So even bodily... if you don't die, you might be paralyzed or yeah. the stat would be a lot more than. Yeah, but driving is one of the most awesome oh. sensations you can have. And I can't believe for the majority of my life, I just saw motorcycles as this thing that like, how is this? How could you even? contemplate getting on this and you know you, you're going to kill yourself now i i love it and there's you're driving a scooter not a motorcycle that, that's okay at right? the end of the day you're on the road on two wheels but if you're on the road with 125 or 150 cc's it's not the same as being on the road on two wheels with a thousand cc's right in roads that are not really designed for it with with other drivers car drivers or truck drivers really not anticipating you being there and really not considering you here I, there's something about how everybody knows you're there they're considering it i guess there's enough because the traffic is as slow as it is there's enough time to consider it and if you end up on the freeway where most of the deaths happen as far as i know the situation is you've got like you're traveling at highway speeds alongside with semi trucks that don't give a fuck about you. That is correct. So actually, this all came from the original conversation that a uh, question that you asked me, which was about these long distance trips that I was taking in Vietnam right. that made me love being here. Some parts of those trips are gnarly. They're really pretty hardcore. You have, a, you know, all these trucks coming around you and it really does. There is a heightened sense of like, wow, if I goof this up, I'm in a life changing accident. Right. But for the vast majority of those trips, the, the longest trip that I take, uh, took was uh, to Dalat from Ho Chi Minh, which is about 900 kilometers round trip, went through the interior of the country to get there and then took along the coast on the way back. That's a life changing experience. Anybody coming to Vietnam, if they have the capacity to be able to do that, they really should consider it. I really, out of everything, all, all the places in the world that I've gone to, having that trip had a, a profound impact on me. And and there were certain parts there that I was going, uh, safety factors, kind of, you know, the levels kind of. But there was other parts where it's like this is well worth it. This is this is this is what it is. This is the risk versus reward mm -hmm. that you get in anything in life. Isn't this like metaphoric for life in general? Yes. You know. Yes, it is on a motorbike. <laughs> because um, I climbed Kilimanjaro with my father. What an amazing experience! It was an amazing experience, and barely made it myself actually the older people did better for some reason yeah but they've probably been you know and then like since then he's done base everest base camp twice and something in south america and you know he's really gotten in on this and hats off to him i don't know it's i this is so stupid but i recently watched the tv series vikings yeah. And I, I know a lot of it's just fantasy or it's just dramatization 
of loosely cobbled together historic facts, but at the yeah. same time, it's so compelling. Yeah. You're like, oh, it is, yeah. There's something about doing something where it's not great odds. It's not particularly safe. But if you survive, but if you survive, you'll feel pretty good about it. Today on YouTube, a short video I saw about um, some crew that broke the transatlantic sailing speed record and they did it insane they did it in five and a half days the record before that was six and a half days a hundred years ago the record was set at 12 days that was unbelievable you know and and they the guys were they they have a few sound clips with the participants and like it kind of sucks a lot but there's yeah. nowhere else I'd after, rather basically be. Basically after day two. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had new boots, yeah. one guy said, sure. you know, because I guess <laughs> probably his shoes are completely soaked through at this, after oh, like the horrible. first oh. half a day, right? Yeah. But but there's nowhere else I'd rather be. It's not like they didn't know all that was going to happen going into it. They wanted that experience. I um, A couple times on Joe Rogan, there's been this guy that dragged himself across the Antarctic with a sled of supplies, you know, instead of using motorized support or wind support or canine support, it's just himself yeah. and a sled of supplies. And it wasn't easy. Oh God, no. Could you imagine? Right. But I, there's no way that guy would say it wasn't worth it. Or, or if I, if I could have gone back, I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, if we got out of it alive, he'd look back and go, "Holy crap, I I did." So what and does that, that what does that mean about existence? That like because these... we're, we're challenging ourselves and and we're saying, "Look, that risk is is worth it," and it feels so good when you've challenged the risk and you got out alive, right? And I, that's why these these small trips and everybody's saying, "Oh, are you sure you're going to go on the highways?" Yes, because actually, when you're sensible about it and you're not complacent. And you're well prepared, and you you have a have a freaking driver's license, and all of these things, and you do it. It feels very good. You, the fr the sense of freedom, just being on the road like that, it feels fantastic. It's incomparable. Uh, I've done many of these trips now. And I want to do a lot more. I'm only going to share this story because it popped in my mind as you were saying that. There, a f about two years ago, maybe three years ago. There was a foreigner who was lost in the north, uh, and people were searching for him for days. All right. He was. He ended up being found dead. Oh. Uh, he had been free soloing, so climbing without any partner or ropes or anything. Wow. Getting but right he had there. sent a text message to his girlfriend uh, a couple days before he died where he had said this is the most alive i've ever felt yeah holy shit eh? wow and and you know what uh, how telling that would be yeah i mean you could look at him and saying oh climbing mountains without a rope without a friend there to call for emergency if you got hurt. Yeah, you're just out there. You're a moron, just, right? Yeah. That's, I oh. think, most people's initial reaction. No. But. No. It's the most alive he ever felt. So Think how of that, we... you're sort of contracting yourself, you know, but you're, when you're depressed and you're sad and you're, you start to, you become insular and you become, you get smaller and smaller and your world becomes more compact, I think. And it's the opposite of that. 
he was living was he living was he living his truth I, I don't know like it's so easy for us to sit here and and i don't know watch guys doing this on youtube and netflix and stuff but to go and do that like at the to the degree that this guy went and did it i mean he i guess he slipped up and he, he, didn't, he didn't make it and that's that's unfortunate but shit man he like he totally got out there and he goes, you know, I, I'm, I'm imagining this. I want, I want it to happen and manifest and, and I'm going to do this. this. That's cool. It's just a tragic outcome, but it doesn't mean that because you do that, that there's always going to be that tragic outcome. I mean, it might have slipped up. So to bring this back to Vikings and current society, I'm going to put this another crazy theory out there that Please. modern society does not have a healthy relationship with death. And one of the things that yeah. came across within, you know, I don't know if it's true or not, because it's just, it's just a movie, but we watch movies and we absorb whatever truths we do from them, whether they yeah. were true or not, right? The, so many characters in the Vikings TV series justify their actions by you know if i die i'm gonna be in valhalla with odin and living it up every day because i died of honorable death because i was out there risking myself mm. not like a coward who's gonna not not when they die go to valhalla now sure. of course that's all fantasy and not yeah. true but if we take it as metaphor a life carefully lived, working in accounting and never taking risks and dying in old age, but never having challenged yourself. That's, I don't know. Versus a life where you died free solo climbing at the age of 28. I, I think if I looked at my life, if I, if I was brutally honest, for a large portion of my life, I should have been here. Or, or somewhere similar to here, but I didn't just pull the fucking trigger. And there's, there's so many excuses about, well, how do I, how do I find work and how do I do this? And how do I, that, nah, this is all shit, right? It, really, I should have been here much earlier. Uh, that's an interesting realization to have in your life that, and, and there's nothing you can do about it. You, you came when you came and maybe when you came to somewhere like here, that was the only time you could come here because you know, you, you had web companies that needed your help and you came here. And the whole reason I found out about being here was, you know, these digital nomads were out in the world and a lot of them were set up here in Ho Chi Minh and, and they're all saying, hey, this is a great place. I really knew nothing about Vietnam at that time. And it wasn't until they all said, hey, we're all set up shop and we got our MacBooks out and we're, we're doing our thing. And I'm like, oh, I'd like to do that too. And finally, I just, you know, it's a shit or get off the pot kind of situation. And I, I did it. And I, that's the reward is now you're living a life that you're supposed to be living. It feels so good to, to know that you'd took those cues out of life and you go, you know what? I'm going to act on them. I'm going to buy that plane ticket. I'm going to go there and suss it out and do whatever it takes to get there. I mean, the time between when I landed in, in Saigon and saw it for a week and actually 
got here to work and the job that I was employed was, was considerable. There was a lot of time there. And, you know, the agency I was with in Melbourne, after that one week trip, I said, you know, the managing director was a cool guy. You know, it, it takes a certain managing director to, to say yes to this. But I said, look, a lot of my clients right now are remote. Can I just take my MacBook and just gently get on a plane and hang out in, in Saigon for a month and work there? And he's like, yes. And like, you know, <laughs> that's pretty cool. And it was meant to happen. And I, that month there solidified in my mind that I was in the, the right trajectory in my life to be where I needed to be. And that's a cool realization. And not a lot of people, I think, have the fortune to have that happen to them. They, they stay in one place and they feel that it's, it's too much to get out from there, but it feels so good when you do do that. So, I don't know. It's just, wow. Wow. I didn't expect us to get in this topic. I thought we would probably talk about UI in some kind of trite way, but I'm, I'm happy Another that we're time. here instead. Another conversation. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> man, let's try to leave our audience with one final takeaway. Like, if we could summarize this episode... Go ahead, try to summarize it. I'm going to put you on the spot for that while I drink oh, my beer. Oh, man. It, you know what? It, it comes back to, I don't know, if it's design exchange, it's not losing sight of our craft as designers, right? And it's going back to, you know, the, the, the coffee and the, the perfection that went into making that perfect cup of coffee. But in that passion also comes like the the willingness to go out and explore and take risks and do these things ultimately that, that all comes together back to being a good designer right if this if that's the theme of your show wow does that not come back together so nicely is just having passion and and precision about what you do but willing to take risks and willing to explore and willing to go out there and put yourself on the line for a design that you believe in or a path that you want to take. I don't know. That's, that's the best way I can wrap shit up. <laughs> yeah. So in summary, no matter how hard you try at design, what you make is probably not going to be better than a well-crafted beer or coffee. So True that. True that. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I and really appreciate it. Hit like and subscribe. If people would like to find out more about what you're doing, share with us again your uh, coffee website. And if you have anything else that you want to plug, go ahead and just do it now. Well, just, just go to johnderrigan.com and I'll have it all there. See you next time, I guess. Bye. <laughs> cheers, John. Hey, cheers. That was good.